0: 1 Samuel, chapter 24, at verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi." Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words, and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterwards, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. The second reading is 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle,
1: Our Father, we do thank you that you're the Lord of history, and we thank you for this amazing book, 1 Samuel, and we pray now that you'd help us to understand what you're saying and help us to see um, the Lord Jesus more clearly, even as we reflect on King David. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a good day to be in church. I mean, it's always a good day to be in church, uh, especially with limited numbers. It's great when you get to be here, isn't it? Um, But it's a good day to be in church today because it's the first Sunday of Advent, Hence the wreath. We're, we're beginning to kind of prepare our hearts for, to look back to Jesus' first coming and look forward to his coming again. That's a good day. It's also the last in our series of 1 Samuel. Um, we're we're going to pause at this point and we'll pick it up uh, going on into 2 Samuel at some point next year. Um, and those two things might seem like they're a bit strange to put together. First Sunday of Advent, last Sunday in 1 Samuel. Like is 1 Samuel really a kind of Advent reading? Um, But what I want to say up front this morning is that actually I think um, 1 Samuel 24 to 26 is a great note to end on, a great note to be thinking about as we prepare our hearts for Advent. Why do I say that? Well, because uh, once again today, God's going to be speaking to us through 1 Samuel, adjusting our expectations of the kind of leader we need. We've been seeing that all the way through the book that the kind of leader we would naturally look to, the kind of leader we would choose, is not at all the kind of leader that we need and not the kind of leader that God chooses for his people. So we look on the outside, someone tall, someone strong, someone charismatic, someone who looks like they can kind of take matters into their own hands. But 1 Samuel it's teaching us that's not the kind of king we need. We don't need a leader like the world out there who looks strong and powerful, who's kind of self-aggrandizing with a big army, big strength, big wealth, someone who's a taker. No, we need a leader after God's own heart, someone who fundamentally obeys God, listens to him, trusts him through thick and thin, even when it costs. And in this final third of 1 Samuel, we are seeing it will cost. This section is about the suffering of God's chosen king. We started to see that last week, and we've got another dimension of it this morning. Just before I dive in, though, I wonder if you've ever thought of the history books of the Bible, like 1 Samuel, as a book preparing for Advent, for the arrival of Jesus Christ at Christmas, Jesus himself pointed to the Old Testament uh, and said it spoke of him. In fact, he said that the Old Testament said loud and clear that it was necessary for the Messiah, God's chosen king, to suffer. And both Jesus' followers and his opponents struggled to get their heads around that. I mean, how could God's chosen king be born in a stable, in a feeding trough? How could God's chosen king end up nailed to a tree. But Jesus said, actually, the Old Testament had prepared the way for exactly that. The Messiah must suffer, have you not read? And he wasn't just talking about the bits that we might think of. You know, the prophets like Isaiah 53 predicting a suffering servant would come to save the people, or Zechariah speaking of a shepherd who would be abandoned by his flock and pierced. Or Micah, speaking of a humble birth happening in Bethlehem for the ruler of God's people. I mean, those are our usual kind of go-tos, aren't they, for Advent? And we'll hear them in the carol services. And they are amazing. I mean, it's well worth inviting people just to hear that, the readings. Extraordinary that God was preparing the ground over those hundreds of years. But here's the thing. Even the history books, 1 and 2 Samuel here, are preparing the way for Jesus, laying the groundwork for Advent. God is the lord of history the eternal omnipotent creator and as he unfolds history through his word he's preparing our expectations for what the king will look like when god the son steps into the world as a human being and the particular expectation adjustment of these chapters is about suffering not just suffering though we had suffering last week these chapters have Suffering unjustly but not fighting back. That's the key thing from these chapters. God's king, God's chosen king, suffering unjustly and not fighting back. Just before we dive in, if if you're not a Christian joining us this morning, just kind of looking in, we we love it when people do that. It should give you pause for thought what we're going to look at this morning. See, I know the Bible um, asks you to believe some huge things about Jesus, the message of the Bible, that that one man, born as a baby, grown up, rejected and suffering and dying on a Roman cross, that that one man could be your saviour and your king. In fact, your decision about that one man affects all of eternity, that's a big thing to believe that's a big thing to ask someone to believe but the bible says there's huge evidence and not just the eyewitness evidence of the people who saw jesus walking around his amazing life and teaching his miracles his death his resurrection not just that but actually hundreds of years of scriptures preparing the ground showing us what he was going to be like so let's dive in Um, And central to this section, as you'll see in the outline on the back of the sheet, we're going to spend most of our time in point one. It is the big point this morning. Um, And central to this section is this point, that God's chosen king suffers unjustly, but refuses to repay evil for evil, instead trusting God to vindicate him. Sorry, that's a mouthful, but as you'll see in a moment, it's how the Bible puts it. God's chosen king suffers unjustly, but refuses to repay evil for evil, trusting God to vindicate him. That's chapter 24. And then, just to tell you where we're going, we're going to jump to chapter 26, where you see the same thing again, and almost a carbon copy, and then we'll go back to the bit in the middle, chapter 25, and think why that's there. Um, but let's head into chapter 24. Um, so we're, we're uh, dealing with God's chosen king. Uh, David, by this point, he's been anointed by Samuel. He, he's shown uh, himself to be God's king by defeating Goliath, and basically, since that moment, he's been facing more and more opposition as um, Saul tries to um, chase him, tries to kill him, uh, and chases him around the wilderness, um, which, is, which in itself is striking, that, that there isn't a kind of smooth rise to the throne. Even once we're sure this is God's man, now actually he's being hounded by the existing authorities, refusing to acknowledge his right to rule. A lot like Jesus, in fact, if you think about it. Herod tried to destroy him at his birth, jealous of the threat of the new king on the block. And when he grew up, it wasn't much different, the hierarchy of Jerusalem rejecting him. But we've already seen that kind of suffering under relentless um, hostility. The thing we're seeing now is not just that that suffering is continuing, it's extended, but that when God's king suffers unjustly, he refuses to fight back refuses to repay evil for evil because he trusts God to vindicate him. Let's just have a look. Um, uh, have a look down at chapter 24, um, verse 1. Uh, Saul's, been, Saul's returned from the Philistines. He's told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Saul gets this tip-off about where David is hiding. Um, and so Saul and um, tools up. He takes 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and goes to seek David and his men. And at this moment, it's a, it is a, a, a moment of real drama um, i was i was thinking about how to illustrate this moment that we're about to get to in the cave where where david's men are, are hiding and i thought oh maybe it's a bit like at the moment in our house uh, hide and seek is grace's favorite game so so i often have the experience of kind of i'm carrying under i don't know a duvet or something and can hear the noises approaching i was going to illustrate it like that and then i thought actually that's not it at all because that's a game it's just fun when someone finds you but this is life and death David and his men know full well that Saul is a murderous tyrant. He's already destroyed um, a whole town of priests. So verse 3, Saul came to the sheepfolds by the way. There was a cave. Saul went into it to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Just imagine the tension of the moment. Saul's come out marching with his 3,000 crack troops. David has a motley crew of a few hundred men. They're huddled in the back of the dark of a cave. They're, they're desperately trying to stay quiet. There's the dreaded noise of footsteps. Is that what it is? Yeah, that is what it is. Someone's coming into the cave, and I guess they're thinking, is this it? Have they found us? Is it all over? One of them creeps out to see, and as their eyes adjust to the light, it's none other than Saul. Here's their arch enemy, the the murderous pursuer. And and he's not there with his army now. He's just on his own, defenceless, and he's unaware of their presence. He is utterly at their mercy. David's got a clear opportunity to kill him, to, to take matters into his own hands, to give back to Saul the kind of treatment that he's received from Saul. Remember by now, twice Saul has thrown his spear at him at close range in an attempt to kill him. And he's repeatedly chased him across the country with an army. Again, determined to kill him. And so you can understand David's men saying, this is it, this is the moment. Seize the throne with both hands, David. Take the opportunity, take vengeance, take the shot. Take the throne. They dress it up in godly language. Just look in verse 4, the way they try and uh, persuade David. The men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'll give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as shall seem good to you. Just to say we have no record of the Lord saying that. Um, I don't, from what um, David uh, thinks about this, this advice, uh, it seems to not actually be coming from the Lord that he should assassinate God's anointed king. Um, now, uh, verse 5, clearly David's conscience is that even cutting off um, a bit of Saul's robe, which is what he ends up doing, uh, even that his conscience felt wasn't the right thing to do. And it's worth saying, in Exodus, God's law did say you shouldn't even curse a ruler of God's people. So David may be getting it from there. But either way, verse 6, David's really clear. The Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing he's the Lord's anointed. And so David persuades his men with those words and didn't permit them to attack Saul. I think when you stop and think about that, that is just a remarkable example of self-control. Here's the man that's caused David no end of trouble. Saul has already forced him to leave his wife, his family, his home, his best friend in Jonathan, his sense of safety and security. Saul's left him wracked with this daily fear of survival for both himself and all of David's followers. David's been exiled from the cities of Judah, sometimes even from the nation. Uh, Saul's just making his life a living nightmare And worst of all, the throne rightfully belongs to David. And yet David will not repay evil for evil and will not take justice into his own hands. One of the great things about the bible and its history books is uh, if we don't get the point just from reading the story we often get an explanation just after so that, that we kind of do pick up the right point point. and that's what happens from verse eight onwards so, so david uh, comes out once once saul's um, headed off none the wiser david comes out verse eight and calls out to saul to explain what's just happened and um, it's so striking look at it verse nine he says to saul why do you listen to the words of men who say behold david seeks your harm look This day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact I cut the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there's no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you though you hunt my life to take it. Just look at how he's highlighting Saul's unjust treatment of him. Verse 11, know and see, there's no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. David's saying, I'm innocent. In this respect, it's just simply not fair to pursue me as a traitor, because I'm not. I could have killed you, and I didn't. And then David explains um, that he trusts God to do justice in the end, verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Or verse 15, the same point. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. It's extraordinary. David, under, under so much unjust suffering, so much provocation and threat that he didn't deserve, trusts God to do justice, doesn't take the matter into his own hands in case you still haven't got the point, or we've zoned out a bit, verse 17, Saul then says the point back. So for Saul verse 17 says, David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. There's the point. God's true chosen king, even when he's suffering unjustly, refuses to repay evil for evil, but trusts God to vindicate him. And so, verse 20, Saul recognises, just for a brief moment, he's not going to stay like this, but he recognises in verse 20 that you, are, um, you truly will be the king. The kingdom will be established in your hands. And at that point, once David's kind of absolutely proved his point with evidence and Saul has admitted, yeah, fair enough, you're right, if it was Hollywood, you'd expect the kind of film credits to roll. And those little updates, you know, those little word updates that tell you kind of what happened afterwards and everyone lived happily ever after. So so maybe Saul, he finally realized how wrong he was. He gave up the chase, retired from the throne, and, and spent more time with his estranged son, Jonathan. The army got to go back to their families. David got to move back to civilization and actually begin to reign. And finally, he was able to provide proper support for all the people who'd followed him around in the wilderness. That is exactly not how the chapter ends. Verse 22, did you notice? Not at all. Verse 22, then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. That is, they went back into hiding, um, probably in the, the caves again. Um, so Saul has given up for now, but the danger's not over. David's still an outlaw. He's still in hiding. Saul will still be a threat. In fact, in chapter 26, we're going to do it all again. We're going to see another um, uh, chase of Saul trying to kill David. It's just really unfair. I mean, Saul even said as much that it's unfair that he's trying to kill David when David's done nothing wrong. It's unfair that David is the true king and yet is having to hide in the caves. He's the one suffering. It's just not fair. And, and if, um, if you didn't know the Bible or you didn't know what ends up happening with Jesus, just think about what a strange hero story this actually is. Which kind of movie genre would it fit in? It's not like an action movie because, yeah, sometimes the, the good guy gets attacked or framed by the bad guy and, and the good guy's on the run and uh, there's tension and chase scenes, but eventually there's a one-on-one. You get in the cave and the, the good guy, David, I don't know, it would be Bruce Willis or Liam Neeson or someone, like, takes his shot, fights back, does vengeance. But it's not that kind of film. Or maybe it's like a courtroom drama. So yes, he doesn't, he doesn't kill uh, Saul in the cave, but he, he gets some evidence with the corner of the robe. And then there's this big showdown where finally David holds up the robe and says, look, I'm innocent. Why are you chasing me? And if it was one of those courtroom drivers, maybe Kevin Costner um, doing a great speech at the end, that would be kind of, oh, finally, finally everyone realises... And the injustice stops, the suffering stops. But that's not what happens. Actually, by the end of the chapters, David is no better off. We're about to see in chapter 26 it all happening again. David is continuing to unjustly suffer. And when he chooses not to take matters into his own hands, it doesn't all immediately work out right. Actually, he still continues to suffer. A strange story, a strange hero story. Until you realize that God is laying the groundwork for Advent, for the coming of the Lord Jesus, the true chosen king, the one who was chosen by God but rejected by people, even by God's people, especially by those in authority of God's people. Just think about it, Herod at his birth, trying to kill him. Herod, Herod in the last weeks of his life, trying to kill him the political leaders the religious leaders of jerusalem hating him wanting him dead pursuing him looking for tip-offs about where he could be found and the romans as well He, he didn't come as a mighty king and kind of take them on and squash them no he was falsely convicted and crucified by them and yet both jesus and david refused to take matters into their own hands they trust god to vindicate them in the end and I think when you, when you kind of reflect on 1 Samuel 24, it, it, it's striking just how extraordinarily tempting it must have been for David. His enemy was right in his hands in that cave. In God's providence, Saul was right in front of him, defenceless, vulnerable. He had this opportunity to be the kind of king who takes who takes the throne, takes matters into his own hands, takes God's prerogative to to bring vengeance. How hard it must have been with his friends egging him on as he was slicing the corner of Saul's robe with a knife. How hard it must have been not to use the power that was in his hands. But then you stop to think about Jesus and how much more true of him you see, as the Son of God on earth, with a fully divine nature, as well as a fully human nature, Jesus had all of the power of the Creator at his disposal all the time if he chose to use it. Do you remember what he said to Peter in Gethsemane when the vigilante mob came to arrest him and take him to their kangaroo court? Peter pulled out his sword to start fighting their corner, to start attacking the injustice of it all. And Jesus said, put your sword back into its place and listen to this, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus lived constantly with the awareness that he could obliterate his enemies at any moment. They were always in his cave. As the son of God, he he was sustaining their very being even as they attacked him and mocked him and tied him up. But he didn't. Peter, that same friend, later wrote, um, (laughs) who'd been so keen to fight for justice that night before the cross, he later wrote this that we read, when he was reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Those words are so close to verse 17 here in 1 Samuel. Or to put it the other way around, 1 Samuel so closely anticipates and prepares the way for the true king. I think particularly so that we won't miss him when he comes or underappreciate him, because he does look weak and long-suffering and unjustly treated at his first coming. But that's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of his extraordinary strength to obey God under pressure and to save us from the biggest enemies of sin and death, which he had to go to the cross in our place, unjustly suffer for us. It's not weakness, it's strength. And so Jesus says, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer? Have you not read? Assume he's thinking, have you not read 1 Samuel, 24, or 26? That's our first point, and don't worry, we'll spend much less time on on points 2 and 3. But um, chapter 26 is going to really make the same point, but but double underlined. Um, So just flick your eyes across um, to to chapter 26. Uh, And you'll notice that so much of the same stuff seems to be happening. Um, So uh, verse 1, Saul gets another tip-off about where David is hiding himself. Uh, so verse 2, again Saul arises, and again he, he amasses uh, 3,000 chosen men um, and, and goes off to, to, to find um, David. Now, if you are getting deja vu, that's understandable, the parallel is so close. In fact, it's so similar that um, some sceptical liberal scholars think this must be two accounts of the same event. Uh, it's implausible that two times Saul would chase after this guy for no reason, and two times, David would have him at his mercy, as we're about to see. And two times, David would, would cut off or, or steal something that shows he was there and able to kill him. They just think, that must be the same event. But actually, there's lots to suggest it is different. And lots of the details are different. In chapter 24, we were in a cave. Here, we're in a, an army camp. Chapter 24, Saul was going to the toilet. This time, he's asleep. Uh, the regions are different. The people involved are different. It's clearly a different incident, but so similar what happens? I assume because the God of history has a significant point to underline for us. Here's the point. It may feel familiar. God's chosen king suffers unjustly again, but he still refuses to repay evil for evil, trusting God to vindicate him. Just look down at verse 7 with me as we pick up the story. So uh, David and Abishai, his his uh, companion, go to this army camp by night. There lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I'll not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day to come will come to die, or he'll go into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should take out my, put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that's at his head and the jar of water and let's go. It's just the same scenario again. Another opportunity to kill him, another companion telling him to do it, and again, Jesus refuses to kill Saul, just taking evidence that he's had the chance. And just think, if it was hard to resist last time in chapter 24, well, how much more now? Because now Saul has really proved himself that he's never going to change. All that weeping and admitting that he was wrong at the end of 24, well, it didn't make a single bit of difference. Surely now is the time for David to put, take matters into his own hands. But David says, no, I'm going to trust God to do justice, verse 10. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. It's really remarkable. He entrusts himself to the God who judges justly. Again, we get a conversation between David and Saul, verse 18. Again, David points out that he's innocent. Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? What have I done? What evil is in my hands? The answer is none. In fact, the only thing in David's hand at that point is the spear, a symbol of how Saul tried to kill David, and David has not killed or tried to kill Saul. It's just so unfair. But David's confident, verse 23, that God will ultimately do what's right, do justice. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed it's absolutely extraordinary. It's an amazing picture of a king who's, who's learnt to trust God, even in the midst of suffering and injustice. Some of us will have been through times where we have been wronged, really badly treated, whether in a workplace situation Uh, or betrayed by a friend, or a family dynamic, or a marriage, where it feels like I'm always being treated unfairly. Some of us will know how that feels. Actually, nothing comes close to the extended and utterly unfair treatment of David here, or for that matter, what Jesus himself faced. But what's so striking is that God's king chooses to follow God's path even when it's so costly and so unfair and even when those around him are saying, come on, just grab it. The soldiers around David were saying, come on, now's the time, enough's enough. You're the king, just take the throne. Jesus faced that and not just a single time. You remember back in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan early in his ministry. Satan offered the kingdoms of the world without having to go to the cross. There was the temptation to just flex his muscles as the son of God, to take matters into his own hands, to rush the program, to avoid the pain. And it didn't only happen once to Jesus. It wasn't just 24, chapter 24, it was chapter 26. You remember when Jesus first announced to his disciples that he was going to go to the cross, He's going to be rejected and killed by the authorities when he got to Jerusalem. uh, Peter got into his ear saying, surely not, surely not. You shouldn't be losing. You should be winning. You should be fighting. You shouldn't be enduring unjust suffering. You're the king. To which Jesus' response was, get behind me, Satan. Because it was the same temptation as back in the wilderness, that temptation to serve himself himself to not follow God, to sidestep his suffering, to seize the throne. Actually, the king we need was a king who would be willing to suffer unjustly. All the way back here in 1 Samuel, God was laying the groundwork of what his chosen king would look like. The king who would not repay evil with evil when he had the opportunity It was a choice Jesus took again and again and again on the way to the cross for us. What a wonderful leader he is. If you haven't taken some time out recently, just just to reflect on Jesus, just what an extraordinary king and saviour he is, well, this Advent period, this Christmas period, would be a great time to do that. That's chapters 24 and chapter 26. Just finally, though, for our last few minutes, what about chapter 25? You see, wedged between those two, clearly a pair of stories, those two stories about David letting Saul go, is this story of Nabal and Abigail and their near annihilation at David's hands. See, that's the story. You can read it later. But having shown such restraint in chapter 24... Um, in chapter 25, David suffers another indignity, another injustice. Um, it's at the hands of this guy, Nabal. His name means fool, and he does act like a fool. Um, because when God's king, David, um, uh, who's been protecting some of Nabal's shepherds, uh, David sends a polite request for some food and some supplies, and Nabal refuses, and doesn't just refuse nicely, he, he refuses with maximal rudeness. Who does the son of Jesse think he is? stuff you. In lots of ways, Nabal's just treating David the way Saul has treated David. But in this case, David is enraged. Just look at verse 13 of chapter 25. David said to his men, every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. It's really striking. There's no consulting the Lord about what to do like he did in in chapter 23 with the Philistines. David's just too mad for that. He's fuming. Just look at the vow he makes in 21. Now David said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do to the enemies of David and more, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. That's how angry David is. And did you notice in the middle the same issue He has returned me evil for good. I've done nothing but good to Nabal, but he's treating me wrongly. It's the same issue. But this time, David is really angry. So much for trusting God to do justice. David decides to put justice in his own hands. Which just goes to show, actually, I think this chapter being in the middle of the other two, it just goes to show that if you ever thought it was easy for David to restrain himself with Saul, this shows it wasn't. I mean, you'll know that if you've ever been mistreated, really unfairly treated or slandered. How dare this man speak to me, treat my men like this? And here's the thing, if it hadn't been for Abigail, Nabal's wife, who gets wind of what has happened and chases after David's men to try and appease them before it's too late, if it hadn't been for her, this chapter would have been a bloodbath. David was determined to to take matters into his own hands Um, we don't have time to read um, uh, abigail's speech but just look at how verse in verse 32 how david uh, describes what's happened once she's talked him down david said to abigail blessed be the lord the god of israel who sent you this day to meet me blessed be your discretion blessed be you who've kept me this day from blood guilt from working salvation with my own hand For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who's restrained me from hurting you, unless you'd hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal such as one male. David was saved from his rash action. And then verse 37, um, the Lord does act and do justice. So when uh, Abigail tells Nabal what's been going on, his heart dies within him. He became as a stone. Then verse 38, about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who's avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. So there it is. This middle chapter is a near miss. Sandwich between those two model king passages shows of restraint under unjust suffering. Is this story where David himself had to be restrained by Abigail or else he would have taken vengeance on his own hands. What's the point of that being there in the Bible? Well, it does show us how hard it is to endure unjust suffering, which is worth remembering with Jesus as well. Jesus wasn't a robot. He was fully human. He would have felt that indignant um, sense of, of wrongness in how people were treating him and his followers. So it partly shows us how hard it is to endure unjust suffering. But also, I think it begins to show us that we need someone greater than David's. There are various clues in this chapter that things are not all right with David, including the number of wives he takes by the end of the chapter. We're beginning to see that we need someone who doesn't just do it some of the time, but all of the time. And doesn't need someone to restrain him, but actually is able to obey God all the time, trust God all the time, during unjust suffering and when you think about jesus that is exactly what he's like just think as as um the disciples were often egging him on egging him to to kind of cool down thunder and judgment on those they didn't approve of uh like david's companions they were telling him he, he should just go for it or peter drawing that sword to fight Or when those Roman soldiers dressed him in the purple robe and put a a crown of thorns on his head and bashed him and said, ah, you call yourself a king. Yeah, you really look like a king now. Jesus, in the end, had to face the indignity alone. There was no Abigail to, to come and say, just keep your cool. He was on his own. And yet, Christ, when he was reviled, did not revile in return when he suffered, did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's an absolutely extraordinary thing. I think one of the benefits of these kind of visceral, real-life narratives in 1 Samuel is it reminds us just how remarkable, how hard Jesus' road of suffering was as he faced injustice and trusted his Father. And one Peter, you will have seen, makes a connection to the Christian life. So, the big application this morning is to appreciate Jesus, to wonder at him, to love him, and to realize how amazing he is. Uh, but there is a, a kind of overflow application for us to follow his way. Um, as one Peter puts it, he set us an example. Um, and actually, even in one Samuel, I think David is there as an example to the people as well as um, a pointer to the king. Just think how the book began. Hannah. Just a a normal Israelite, um, suffering deep pain. She was um, grieving childlessness very deeply and suffering injustice um, as uh, she was was mocked by a family member for, for not having children. It's just a brutal situation, unfair and so painful. And what did she do? Well, she didn't give back as good as she got. She prayed. She turned to the Lord, looked to the Lord for vindication, whether now or in the future. And so it's absolutely right that the first readers of this book, as they were stuck in exile, some of them a faithful remnant, thinking, why are we here? Why are we facing this? They were to follow the example of the king and trust God. Likewise, if you're suffering at the moment, uh, whether in the workplace or the home, um, real injustice, or if it's in the past but you can't really let go of it, so unfair and painful it it was, actually look to our king. Our King, who set an example because there was no reviling even when he was reviled. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Let me pray as we close. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for these books that prepare the way for Jesus. And we pray this Advent, with everything else going on and all the worries and and tiredness and and weariness in our our minds and hearts, we pray that you would help us to wonder afresh at the Lord Jesus, at the humility and the long-suffering and the willingness to trust you in all circumstances. We pray that you would fill our hearts with wonder for him and that that might free us to be gracious even when we are treated badly. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.